Uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for this dialogue, this conversation we get this inside access into. We pray that as we look at it, as we study it, as we think deeply about what's going on here, that you would do work by your Spirit to give us light, to give us understanding. I pray for anybody in this room who has yet to come to terms with who Jesus claims to be. We pray that this would be a time of transformation, of new life. We pray for all of us who who look back on that moment of transformation and, and, and look at it and marvel at the work you've done in our lives. I pray that you would bring rejoicing and happiness and rest to our souls as we contemplate the work that you've done in our hearts by your Spirit. We pray that we would be doers of your word, that we would practice what we see here and love you for it. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, children, you can be dismissed. Today we begin a eight-part series. And if you're anything like me, I like explanation as to why we're doing studies. Sometimes it feels like you just randomly run into a new portion of Scripture, you study it, you pop out the other end, you randomly, randomly run into a new portion of Scripture, you study it, you pop out the other end. And uh, let's spend a little bit of time thinking through why it is that for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 3 and 4. Okay, so two chapters, eight weeks. Will and I are going to split it, uh, which will be a fun, a fun challenge for us. And we're doing it, first of all, okay, so first reason. Rob is on sabbatical. 
Good reason, right? So we needed an eight-week series while he's on his eight-week sabbatical. A little bit less utilitarian. Let's think a little bit more deeply here. We just studied Ruth. Um, And Ruth is an Old Testament narrative that's wonderful, right? It tells us all sorts of stuff about uh, the story of redemption and what it means to be in Christ. It's a great narrative. It was very edifying to us. When Rob comes back, the plan, Lord willing, is to start Exodus. And as you can imagine, that's going to be a little bit longer than what we spent in Ruth. Uh, That also is a story about the history of redemption and what God is doing uh, for us as people in redeeming us. We wanted to spend some time, and I think this is where these texts serve us so much, getting back to some basics. What we have here in, in John 3 and 4 while profound and wonderful and complex at times, is essentially Kingdom 101. It's the foundations. It's, it's where we rest in our basic understanding of the gospel. John, this first chunk of John here really answers some profound, important questions for us. Who is Jesus? I mean, there's nothing more foundational than that. Gary preached on that a bit from John 1 before, and we'll we'll overview that just briefly before we move forward. What is the kingdom life that Jesus is calling us to and and offering us? How can we enter? And that will really be the topic this morning. Chapter 3 of John deals heavily with the question of how. How is it that we come to participate in this life? that Jesus offers, this kingdom life. Next week, or not next week, after that, after a few weeks in John John 3, we're going to get to John 4. And John 4 really focuses on who. It gives us stories of the sorts of people that are welcomed into the kingdom. And so these, these two chapters allow us to slow down a little bit and pay attention to the basics, get our basics right, get our eyes focused back on the center in between these two wonderful narrative studies we're going to be doing, okay? So that, that really is the deeper reason for this. We have some wonderful things to focus on at the foundation for the next eight weeks, and hopefully those will serve us well. John is beautiful. It's gold. It's wonderful, and um, hopefully you're nourished by it. This morning, John chapter 3. Um, We are going to consider this morning really what theologians call regeneration or new birth or as Jesus puts it, born again, what it means to be born again. And our text will break down into kind of two chunks, admittedly not two evenly portioned chunks, but two chunks. The first first bit in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the need. Why is new birth necessary? Who is it necessary for? The need. And then in 4 through 15, we're going to get some inside information on the nature of this new birth. Jesus is going to do some instruction on the nature of this new birth that we need. And really, looking back to John chapter 1, okay, put on your memory a little bit. John chapter 1, you can turn your Bibles there. Um, John chapter 1, verse 12. This topic of new birth is central uh, to what's been going on in the gospel so far. We, we looked with Gary at John chapter 1 through, uh, 1 through 18 as the prologue, right? And he talked about how in that prologue really is encapsulated the whole message of the gospel. It's really the overview. Uh, 
um, the synthesis of the whole thing. And within that, we read this in verse 12. But who all, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's the gospel message, right? Verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's in the beginning. That's in the overview. That central to this gospel message is a recognition that there's this birth from God happening. And here in chapter 3, we get a narrative, a story, a discussion really, a dialogue, that gets us inside of that truth. What does it mean to be born again? And why is it necessary? So new birth is central to the gospel. And if we don't understand it, we really are going to miss a lot of the foundations of what it means to be a believer. There's a statement I want to meditate on later in the, in the sermon with you, um, but I just want to throw it out in the beginning here. Think about this for a second. From beginning to end, the Christian life is a life given from above. Think about that. From beginning to end, the Christian life is a life from above. From the very start, the very inception of it, to the very, not that it ever ends, but carrying on in perseverance. It's all from above. And that's what we get to look at this morning. We get to lay that foundation. How is it that the Christian life is from the very beginning, from above? Well, it's because of what Jesus teaches here about new birth. All right, so let's set the scene a little bit more. Let's get us into the context, and then we'll dive into this dialogue. So chapter 1 dealt with who is Jesus. It presented this lovely picture of Jesus and the gospel message that he comes to present. Jesus the Word. Jesus the, the Divine One. Jesus the Incarnate One, the One who has come in the flesh to be among us, to display the glory of God. And in all those terms, what we're really saying is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And chapter 2 carries on that theme. And it starts to illustrate what it means for him to be the Messiah. He has this passion for his Father's temple. He has this power to do marvelous signs. Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the long-awaited one sent from above to carry out a mission. And in chapter 3, in order to really understand, I think, the drama of what begins in chapter 3, we have to understand a bigger contextual piece. Okay, so this is silly to say, but chapter 3 and chapter 4 are in a sign sandwich. They're in a literary structure. They're in a structure within John's gospel where he's trying to prove a point. And that structure has a sandwich effect to it. There's a top layer of bread and a bottom layer of bread, or maybe a, a bookend, a first bookend and a second bookend. In between those bookends is our two chapters we're going to study in this series. On the outside of this bookend are two signs, two signs, two miraculous signs of Jesus. The first sign in chapter 2 is the, uh, the, uh, the turning of the water into the wine. This sign happens in Cana. And, and the result of this sign, which is crucial to understanding what the signs are, is belief. The text tells us that as a result of this private sign that Jesus does, just in front of his disciples, the disciples believe. The second sign, and you can notice the similarities here, also happens in Cana. It's the son of an official who gets healed by Jesus. And what's the result of that? Belief belief. When John 
writes the big purpose statement of this gospel. You probably have it in your mind in John 20, 30 to 31. Let's just turn there so we can get that in our heads. Uh, John chapter 20. He connects the dots with what these miraculous signs are meant to do. Um, And we need to understand it because we're in a sign sandwich. So to understand the importance of these verses we're going to be looking at, we need to understand how these signs are meant to function. John 20, verse 30 to 31. So John is kind of summarizing the purpose statement of why he wrote this gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so ask the question, what is the purpose of these miracles? Particularly in these two Cana miracles. I mean, there's many more in the book, as, as John talks about. But what is the purpose of these signs? Well, there's this string of logic here, is there not? Signs are meant to lead to belief. They're meant to lead to an understanding of who this Jesus is. And in that belief, they're meant to lead to life eternal life, kingdom life. So these signs are powerful when it comes to the gospel. These signs are meant to do something. They're meant to lead to belief that then leads to life. In the miracle, we're meant to see who this man is. And in seeing who this man is, we're supposed to see how it is that we can be saved because he is the Messiah. Because he is the one sent from God to save his people. So there's this purpose. And this text that we're going to read is sandwiched within these signs. And that that bears weight in the way that we even interpret what goes on with Nicodemus here, okay? So let's start moving into into the narrative, into the dialogue here we have between Nicodemus and Jesus. Again, we're going to look at a need in the first chunk, and then we're going to look at the nature for new birth. So let's, let's get this scenario in our head. John presents kind of a brief introduction to this conversation. In verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So pause there. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a spiritual elite, and therefore a social elite in the Jewish culture. He is a teacher. Jesus calls him later the teacher of Israel. Uh, This is a man who understands, at least as he sees it, the scriptures. He has an authority, uh, um, an ability to preach with confidence, to teach with some dogmatic conviction from the scriptures because he understands them and he teaches from that understanding. And so this is a guy who, in the public eye, is viewed as a teacher with authority. And this is a guy who, in his own eye, is a teacher with authority, which will come into play later. And this man comes to Jesus, verse 2, by night. Now, people have made various things out of that little detail, that little setting detail. And let me just maybe draw out two of them. It seems reasonable to say that when Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night, he's he's coming to him intentionally at night. Nicodemus is a leader of the Jews. For him to come to Jesus and have a private conversation may have been looked down upon by his followers. We don't know that by, 
We don't know that as a fact, but that seems like it would be reasonable. He is doing this secretively. But John, if you know the Gospel of John, has all sorts of imagery. And light and darkness is a huge image in John. And so I don't want to overplay this point, but, but he's coming to Jesus in the dark. We'll see that that actually plays out in his own life. He is in the dark. And so let's begin this dialogue. And let's see Jesus establish, in verses 2 and 3 here, the need for new, new birth. Nicodemus engages Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, so Nicodemus presents his interpretation of Jesus' signs. Ding, ding, ding. Sign sandwich. What are signs supposed to do? lead to an understanding of who this man is, and based on that understanding, lead to life. What is Nicodemus's understanding of the sign? He does see something in these signs. He says, we know, I think he's speaking of the Pharisees, the teachers, that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, what is he seeing here? Does he see the whole scope of Jesus' identity? Nicodemus sees Jesus' uh, divine enablement. He knows that nothing like this could happen if God was on his side. Uh, and, and I think his identity deciphering stops there. And we know it stops there because of what Jesus says next. You know, what Jesus says next has at times confused me. How does... How does Jesus jump from this statement by Nicodemus to this statement about new birth? So let's read this statement, and then let's think about the logic here. Jesus says, and it's truth number one there in your notes. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus' immediate response to this statement of, Nicodemus' interpretation of these signs is to say, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. Why? Because no one can see the kingdom unless they are. Wait, but isn't Nicodemus seeing something? What's, what's going on here? What, what is happening? Well, let's first stop and think, okay, born again. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, that, that phrase, uh, which is tip, a lot of times translated born again, really has the picture born from above born of above. It's a, um, it's a picture of divine birth, um, which clearly shocks Nicodemus a bit, okay? What does the new birth do? And we'll get into this in a little bit in the nature, but let's, prop, let's prep it here. What does the new birth do? Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. What did Nicodemus see in this moment? He saw God at work. Did he see the kingdom? I don't think he was getting there. When Jesus says he could not see the kingdom, I think what Jesus is saying is Nicodemus does not come to understand the reality that is standing right in front of him. Nicodemus sees God at work in this man, or at least concedes that he sees this, but yet he does not see Jesus for who he is. He is a rabbi. He is a mere teacher. And we know Jesus is much more. 
So what's going on here? Nicodemus sees, but he doesn't see. He needs new birth to see fully. He needs, a, a, he needs life from above in order to truly come to terms with who this Jesus is in front of him and what it means to respond to Jesus. Can you imagine how shocking that statement would be for him? He's a teacher, the teacher of Israel. He's the one that knows authoritatively that he speaks God's word to the people. And Jesus is saying, you need a new birth. You need a new birth, Nicodemus. Think of the implications of that. A Jew of Jews. The center sort of guy. The one with the greatest spiritual pedigree. The one with the greatest spiritual heritage. The one with the greatest biblical knowledge. Needs new birth. Implication for us? It doesn't matter who you are. Where you come from. How great of a spiritual family you have. What sort of lineage of Christian belief? How many pastors were your, were your father and grandfather and down the line? What sort of church you were born into? What sort of family structure you have? What ethnicity you are? What, what uh, denominational affiliation? Anything. It doesn't matter. We all come needy of this new birth. Because no one can see the kingdom without it. Nobody can come to a place of recognizing Jesus for who he is, without it. How does Nicodemus respond? Well, he really misunderstands. Nicodemus, look at his response next. He asks a follow-up question. How can a man be born when he is old? He's thinking physically here, right? He's thinking, what in the world do you mean, new birth? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, we don't know if he's being you know, sarcastic or cynical or whatever there. It just seems like he's missing the whole point. He's thinking Jesus is talking about, like, you need a different physical birth. And Jesus is talking on a whole different plane. And Jesus goes on then to describe what he means. And so this gets us to think, okay, not just about our need. Nicodemus needs it. We need it. But about the nature of it. What is it that Jesus is talking about with this new birth? What is Jesus talking about? Let's get at the nature of new verse, new birth. Jesus continues. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right, so the real fundamental issue here is we need to understand what Jesus means when he says, born of water and the Spirit. He's getting at the nature of this new birth. What is it that we're talking about? When we talk about new birth, new birth, regeneration, born again, born from above, what is it that we're talking about? And, and maybe you already have an answer in your brain. I know I did, and I've been helped as I've studied. So let's talk through at least one, I think, typical interpretation of this. Okay, water and the spirit. I'd be interested to see nods of head. How many of you take that naturally to mean born naturally 
and born supernaturally. We have some nods out there. So Jesus is talking about like you need to be born from your mother's womb and then you need to be born from God. And I understand why we would be that way. There's, there's certainly a part of that in this context here. But I think there's something else going on here. Let's start thinking about some reasons to take it a different way. Let's start first with a translation reason. So let's talk a little bit about language. Um, the language here translated born of water and the spirit, I think it's a little bit misleading. I really like the ESV. I don't know what you're reading. I like the ESV. I think it's a great translation. But I think they've over-translated here a bit. There is no article in front of spirit. And so we take it to mean born of, you know, essentially born of man and then born of God, the spirit. But there's no article there. And furthermore, the of really grammatically kind of governs what we do with both water and spirit. They're kind of on, they stand side by side. And so we can really read it born of water and of spirit, which, of course, we know is ultimately capital S, spirit, God's spirit at work. But I think it points to a different understanding of what is going on here with water and spirit. And like most things with scripture, when we're confused, one of the great questions to ask is, how would Nicodemus have most immediately understood what Jesus is talking about if he understood it? In other words, what is the Old Testament background that Jesus is playing off of? And that leads us to think of Ezekiel 36. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. This is such an important passage, I think, for us to understand what we're talking about when we talk about this need for new birth. What is regeneration? What is this new birth, this born-again reality that we need? Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. We're going to discuss here new covenant promises. This expectation of a new covenant, a new reality, a new relationship with God through the Messiah. And this is one of the foundational places where that promise is given. Starting in verse 22, Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among, among, among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Okay, how is he going to do this great glorifying of his name among the nations? Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ding, ding, ding. You guys see the connections there? God is promising a new covenant reality. Under the old covenant, Israel had laws to fulfill, obligations. If you obey me, I will be to you this, this covenant-keeping God. If you disobey me, I will bring upon you these curses. 
And the history of Israel is while they had some obedience, some measure of obedience at times, the, the overwhelming pattern was disobedience because they didn't have hearts that wanted from the heart to obey. They needed new birth. And so the center of this new covenant that God was going to make with his people and bring all of us into in Christ is new spiritual life. And he gives the language of that new spiritual life as cleansing, water, new heart, new spirit. Look, look at that. I mean, I will clean you from all your uncleannesses and I will wipe away your idols. So he's not just talking about forgiving past sins. He's talking about changing heart realities, purifying our hearts. And then he goes on to talk about, I will put in you a new spirit, a new heart. I will remove that heart of stone and put in you a new heart and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word heart in the Bible, but essentially, if we're going to talk about the big picture, heart is talking about uh, three aspects. I talked about this in the class this morning in Sunday school. It talks about our thinking. It talks about our desiring, our, our emotions, our affections. And it talks about our, our choosing, um, our will. So when, when it's the center of the man, the center of the person, the thing that acts out uh, inside of us, when, when God is saying, I will take out a heart of stone, a cold, calloused, hard, un- impenetrable heart, and I'll put a heart of flesh in there. He's saying, I'm going to give new thoughts. I'm going to give new desires. I'm going to give a new will. And as he says, else, as Jesus says elsewhere, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do we fight and quarrel among us, James says? Because we desire and cannot have. When there's a new heart inside of us, a new life results. So when Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit, this is what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. You need God to do an internal work of like open heart surgery to give you new thoughts and new desires and new, a new will that will produce a life of obedience. But not just obedience. It will produce a life of understanding. New birth is of water and spirit. Nicodemus needs to be included into the new covenant people, which to a Jewish mind must have just been outrageous. He is of the covenant people, and you're saying I need a new reality to make me of the covenant people? There's a reason why he says what he says next. Let's get back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? How can they be? And I don't think he's at this point just thrown up his hands and saying, I don't get it. I think at this point he's saying, I'm challenging. I'm challenging that interpretation. I'm challenging your authority, your truthfulness here. How can that be? And I think the reason why we can see this as a challenge is because of the way Jesus responds. He doesn't respond squishy and nice. He responds with some authority, some assertion of who he is. Look at his response. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? 
and yet you do not understand these things? Which implies that he should understand them, which implies that we're right to go back to the Old Testament and say there's something there that draws us to, to understand what he's saying. Nicodemus should get these realities. He under, he's read Ezekiel. He's probably memorized Ezekiel. He knows the text. He should understand this need for a new spiritual life. Are you the teacher and you do not understand these things? And then Jesus goes and he asserts his authority to speak what he's been speaking. Verse 12. If I, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I've told you some stuff. You Pharisees, Nicodemus included, I've told you some stuff about who I am and about my purpose here. And you are not believing. And then he asserts his authority. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus makes a clear statement. I am the Messiah. I am the glorious king you are awaiting the one sent from God. And because of who I am, I have authority to speak on these things. So that truth number three there, his third truly, truly statement, Jesus' authority is rooted to his identity. As the Son of Man, as the Messiah, as the one sent from God, who is himself God, he knows the truth and he speaks authoritatively. His messianic word is true. That's what we get in this context. He's saying, Nicodemus, you, you question what I'm saying, but I know I am from God. I am the Messiah. And Jesus moves from stating his truthfulness in verses 11 and 13 to then talking about his mission. He speaks of the purpose for which he came. Now, there's an implication here, and I'm just going to throw it in here so we can think about it. There's a danger when we talk about regeneration, talk about new birth, of when we talk about it's the sovereign work of God, you know, the wind blows where it wishes, God does this work sovereignly in people's hearts. Uh, it's a new spiritual life. You can't even come to terms with who Jesus is without it. When we talk about this, there's a danger of saying, okay, we shouldn't even present the gospel to people unless they have this new life. And so there's whole swaths of church history, maybe not swaths, there's some parts of church history where people have fallen into an error who have waited to see signs of regeneration before they even speak uh, the message of Christ. Is that what Jesus does here? He just established that Nicodemus does not know. He does not have this new life. And now he's going to present to him the gospel. And next week, as Will preaches, he's going to continue to present to him the gospel. Let's look at this gospel message that he presents. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So yet again, Jesus draws upon an Old Testament picture. What is this Old Testament picture that he draws upon? Numbers 21, Israel is disobedient. God sends stinging serpents to bite them, to kill them. And thousands of people are dying. It's a terrible scene. And God leads Moses to put a statue of a serpent on a pole. And if Israel will look to that serpent on that pole, they will be healed. It's a picture of trusting in God's provision of salvation. Listening to God's word and obeying it. It was a chance for Israel to hear God's word proclaimed to them and to respond in faith. Jesus sets this up as the picture of his mission. Just as the serpent 
was lifted up in the wilderness. And those who looked to it could be saved. Trusting in God's word. Responding by faith. So, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Which, of course, is a picture of Jesus lifted up on a cross. As the means of our salvation. Jesus lifted up in glory as the finisher of our salvation. Jesus will be lifted up. Jesus presents the gospel message to Nicodemus, someone who has yet to be born again, gives him his authority and his mission. And so we, like Nicodemus, come to this text and we say, do we understand this? Do we understand this? Do we see in Jesus the Messiah? Do we see in Jesus our means of salvation? And do we respond to it in faith? Again, we talked about this as a foundation series, but this is everything. Do we trust God's provision for our salvation and turn to him in faith? There's another danger we can fall into here. Another danger. There's a danger of thinking of new birth as something that happens that we kind of have to wait around for. So we, you know, if you're a church kid, maybe. Maybe you found yourself feeling stuck. Like, I want to believe this stuff, but I hear this thing about regeneration, and I don't I don't think this has happened to me yet, and so I feel stuck. Like, what do I do? Do I have this this faith? Do I have this new life? And I I think this text draws us to think of new birth um, in concrete terms. This isn't some mystical experience. Certainly, it's supernatural. It's divine. It's wonderful. But it's not unknowable or undiscernible. We've been given some concrete things here. What does it mean to be born again? And how can we have confidence that this has happened to us? The fundamental question presented in this text is, do you see? What are are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Do you know him? as the Messiah, as the one sent from God to save us. And are you trusting in that? It's, it's not complicated, because guess what? You can't do that unless God is at work, unless God has given new life. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, go ahead and turn there, because this is just a great, helpful description of what we're talking about. Apostle Paul talks about the reality of what it means to not be born again and then to be born again. And he gives us great language that maps on to Nicodemus' experience really well. And if I could take the time, the rest of the context maps on to Nicodemus' experience even better as he, we deal with him as a Jew who understands the law and yet doesn't see the glory of God in Christ. But um, certain in chapter 4, verse 2, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. But we, he's talking about the apostles, have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's words. We don't try tricks 
to get people to believe. What do we do? By the open statement of the truth. The truth of Christ. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he talks about butting up against people who don't believe this. And how do we, how do we process the unbelieving mind? He says, even if our gospel is veiled, like if people aren't seeing in the message of Christ the glory of God displayed, which is the whole purpose of Christ coming, right? was to reveal to us the glory of God. If people don't see in the gospel the message or the glory of Christ, what's going on? Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the unbelieving mind, the, the, the fundamental nature of it is they don't see Jesus rightly. They don't see him as glorious, as divine, as the Messiah, as the one sent for our salvation. There's a misunderstanding of Jesus, as we see in Nicodemus. He thinks he's just merely another prophet, another great teacher, another rabbi. What's the difference? What's the difference the new birth makes? Paul goes on in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, why does he keep presenting Jesus? Because there's a reality that happens here. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the creator's power is what he's describing there, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what, what is the new birth? What is this born-again reality that we need? Having our eyes opened, the eyes of our heart opened to see and receive Jesus. So, Christian, do you see and receive Jesus? Is he glorious to you? Is he what you see as your need? To be made right with God, to be brought into the kingdom. Then trust that God is at work in you. He has placed that heart within you and walk in joy and joyful obedience. This, this isn't meant to be something mystical that we just feel insecure about all the time. This new birth has some concrete expressions to it. How are you receiving and, and uh, responding to Jesus? Again, to you in the room who um, are still wrestling with Jesus, Maybe you're you know, a junior high or high school student, or maybe even younger. Maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you've been feeling like you've been pretending for years in the church. This is the central question. If you were to come up to Jesus at night and speak your view of who he is, what would come out of your mouth? What would come out of your heart? Would it be a confession of Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, as the one sent from God? for your salvation, the one who will be lifted up, or who was lifted up for your sins. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life to you? If that's not your response, then you, like Nicodemus, must be born again. Go to God. Have him do this work within you. So new spiritual life is necessary for entrance into the kingdom because you can't see and respond to Jesus without it. You can't understand who he is. God has to do this work to free your, 
your eyes to see the glory of Christ. It has to do this work on your heart to give you new thoughts and new desires and new choices. This is the new covenant reality we get to participate in if we are in Christ, and it's a beautiful thing. This was God's plan to to restore a people who genuinely from the heart know their Redeemer and relate to Him as their Father all spiritual life from beginning to end is from above it's from God we can't do anything spiritually without this new birth but with this new birth we have been set up for a life of joy and obedience let's pray Lord thank you for these truths we trust that your spirit has even been at work right now in this, this moment to open blind eyes to the gospel, to see Jesus rightly, to understand through these signs, these miracles, that this is no ordinary man. This is a man sent from God. This is indeed God in the flesh who we're dealing with. And he's been given for our sake as our substitute, Savior, the one who would be lifted up on the cross for us. We pray that our trust would be in that provision, that we would enter the kingdom through the only means possible. Jesus, dying for us, received by faith. Pray that you would continue to give us what we need to live out our lives of newness in you that you would build a confidence into us that we are in fact the children of God because we have been born not of the will of man nor of the flesh but of God. I pray this in your name. Amen.